Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for May 19th, 2019. Today, Brother Omar brings us a message titled, Doctrine of Salvation, Justification, and Grace. The Brother Omar reminds us that biblical salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from the works of the law. In today's message, we look at the Jew slash Gentile context of Paul's teaching of the gospel and show that we are not only saved from something, but for something. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. We have taken upon ourselves to preach through it and to explain the different points in our statement of faith and why we believe in those things, etc. Um, now, if you were to read our statement of faith, it says that, well, it covers everything that we've covered from the doctrine of the scriptures, the doctrine of God, and all those things. And right now, we are in the section which we're calling the doctrine of salvation. So, if you've been following, we've talked about the atonement, we've talked about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the doctrine of election, and today we're going to be focusing on the doctrine of salvation on the issue of justification and grace. And so our statement of faith reads as follows. It says that salvation is attained by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works. On the basis of Christ's sacrifice and by his blood, we are cleansed from all of our unrighteousness and sin and forgiven on account of his name. We believe that good works follow salvation and a life of perseverance in the faith and growth in the grace of God are evidence of God's redemptive work in our lives. Okay, so today we're going to be focusing uh, at least on, on the first part of that. So we're going to be speaking a little bit on grace and justification and all that stuff. Now, we've covered this before. I think, uh, what was it, last year you did the Ordo Salutis series thing um, where we kind of went through all of this and explained it a little bit in detail. I am not going to get as detailed with it because we've been through it before. Um, and also this is like a, an issue that is not like contended or controversial in our context here in the United States. But what I would like to do is kind of go through the book of Romans and look at how justification shows up in the New Testament and is typically uh, in the context of the conflict of the Jews and the Gentiles. That's how this kind of Paul is writing from that context of, you know, um, how are Gentiles being brought into the faith, right? And the conflict that that's creating with the Jewish believers and even the Jewish non-believers. So, um, and typically that whole context is sort of overlooked when we look at the doctrine of justification. So what I want to do is go back through the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, we spent a lot of time in the book of Romans. <laughs> so I think Pastor Bolden wanted to do a series on Romans. I don't know if I think we spend enough time in it. There's never enough time on Romans, I don't believe. So if you go through the book of Romans, okay, so here's how Paul is setting this up. Paul writes this letter to a church in Rome. We know that because he says, uh, he begins by saying, Paul, servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So um, the way that Paul set this up is this thing that I am about to show you, these, these, these uh, series of teachings, doctrines, or whatever that, I, that I'm about to teach you, it's not something necessarily new or a necessarily a new revelation, but this is something that has been promised beforehand in the um, prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Scriptures, obviously, at their time was the Old Testament because the New Testament was being written. So the Old Testament, Paul is saying, is where you find everything that I'm about to show you. Okay, so I'm not giving you something new necessarily. I'm just revealing to you something that has been, was there all along. Okay? And then he goes on to say in verse 7, To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives his typical introduction that the Apostle Paul gives. So then we get to verse 18. Paul starts sort of laying down his argument. And he begins by proving that Gentiles are pagan, sinful people. Okay? Now, the context, I believe, though this very well may apply to all of us, but Paul is going to point out that mankind, all of mankind, is sinful. So in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The wrath of God, that is God's justice, is revealed from heaven against ungodliness, wickedness, of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. That he goes on to say in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up, Okay, now there's a reason why he says, therefore, therefore points back to what he was saying in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal human beings or birds or four-footed animals and reptiles. For that reason, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, degrading the bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So Paul, as he's laying down his arguments in Romans, he begins to anticipate objections that people are going to make against his argument, and then he begins to answer those objections. So, for example, he says, then, if what you're saying is true, if the Jews are just as wicked, if the Jews are just as sinful as the Gentiles, so what's the point with being a Jew? What are you trying to say here? There's nothing special about us. Paul answers this. He says, what advantage has a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Well, much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the Jews were given God's word. The Old Testament, Psalms, the very Psalm that we read today, or the Proverbs or whatnot, were given to the Jewish people. They preserved it, and we have it today. They were instructed by the word of God. That's an advantage. Nobody else had that, okay? What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, if God gave us all these promises and all these people uh, were unfaithful, does that mean that God's promises were never true? Well, will their faithlessness uh, nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Although everyone is a liar, let God prove true 
as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For how could God judge the world? In other words, if our injustice proves God's justice, okay, and proves that God is good, then um, is it unjust for him to inflict wrath on us? And he says, no, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my fossils God's truthfulness abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? If I'm glorifying God and his justice when I sin and show his justice, he goes on to saying, why not say, as some people think that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. So Paul is anticipating all these objections. Now, these are Jewish objections that he's anticipating, and he's answering them. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, What then? Are we better off? Not at all. For we have already proved that all both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. He's going to give us quotations from the Old Testament. And in verse 19, he goes on to say, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul is pointing out that God's law is such a high standard that any deviation cuts you off. And therefore, human beings can never climb back up that hill of the law because the hill is too high. So the Jewish allegation that through the works of the law, I could attain righteousness, Paul is trying to say, you have been caught off because the hill is too high. So he goes on to say, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed and is witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness that you were promised is going to be revealed. How? Apart from the law. Okay? This was witnessed to by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by His blood, effective through faith. So Paul's point. This is a very short summary of the book of Romans, by the way. But Paul's point, at least for the first three chapters, is this. The righteousness that you were promised, that you're expecting as a Jew, that you think that you're going to attain by the law, was never supposed to be attained by the law. The prophets and the law gave witness to that in the sense that even within the Old Testament, when God gave the law, right with the law came a whole bunch of sacrifices. So when people broke the law... They had to atone for that. So the law and the prophets gave witness to the fact that the law itself shows you your sin, but it can never sanctify you. It can, it can never make you right before God. 
So the sacrifices were instituted as an act of mercy. That's why people had to sacrifice animals. You had the whole temple institution and all that along with it. So Paul goes on to say, yeah, he did this. In other words, what he just said, which is all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. You're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over the sins previously committed. Meaning, God, nobody in the Old Testament was really being forgiven or atoned for. The Animal sacrifices that the saints of the Old Testament was making, upon which they were relying, all they were doing was giving you a symbol. God was forbearing the sins of the world up until Jesus Christ. In other words, he was passing them over. He was laying them on himself so that he can put them on Christ and then atone for them because the animals could never atone for the sins of any man. So the Old Testament said, you've heard me say, in the Old Testament, people were saved on layaway, right? Everybody went to the same place in the Old Testament. Moses, Abraham, everybody went to the same place. There was an air-conditioned partition that the saints were kept, and, everybody, and then everybody else is in hell, right? And then when Jesus dies and God takes those sins and lays them upon Christ, he went back down and he grabbed them and he brought them up to heaven. So they were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ went down, grabbed them, and he took them out of layaway. He paid for them. Okay. So the sacrifices could never forgive sin because they were supposed to point to an even greater sacrifice, which is the one that actually atones for sin and actually brings righteousness. Okay. So verse 27, then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what law? By, what? by that of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from works prescribed by the law. Or God is the God of the Jews only. Is he not God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of faith and the circumcised through that same faith. Do we now overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this is Paul's first introduction to laying down his teaching. Okay? This is it. Boom. I'm going to give it to you right off, right off the back at the beginning. So, Paul then goes on to show in, verse, in chapter 4 that this way of salvation is the only way that has ever been a salvation. So he's going to go back to the patriarchs. He's going to go back to the big papa. He's going to go back to Abraham. The Jews claimed Abraham, okay? And he was Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. So he goes on to say, this is another objection. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by words, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So in other words, how was Abraham set right with God? 
He believed God and he was reckoned by God as righteous. Okay, Abraham was justified by faith. Then he goes on to say, verse 13, For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, and there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law that will be Jews, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, and have made you the father of many nations. In other words, Abraham is justified by faith before receiving the law, before receiving circumcision, and even better yet, he wasn't even a Jew. Abraham was a Gentile. He was a Chaldean. He was an Iraqi, modern-day Iraq. That's where he was from. So the father of the Jews was a Gentile. Okay? And Abraham was justified before God and given the promises when he believed God and God declares him righteous before any works of the law and before circumcision. That's how he becomes the father of us all. Is he the father of only the Jews? No, he's not. He's the father of all of those who share in the same faith that he had, which is he's the father of us all. Okay? This makes Jewish people mad at the time. Because we're a special, elect, chosen group of people, right? So, that's the conflict. The conflict is that the objections that a Jewish reader would have is, these promises have been given to us. We have carried this um, burden, so to speak, of the law. We have kept God's word. We've preserved it. We have all these hopes and expectations and promises that were given to us. Why then do you feel that some Johnny-come-lately can just roll up in here, right? And grab all these promises too. Now, Jesus, when he gave parables, he was, also, he was already showing us this. Go Matthew 20, I'm going to go to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Okay, so Matthew chapter 20, let me show you. This is a parable that Jesus gives about the laborers in the vineyard. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay? After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay? When he went out about 9 o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, hey, you also go into the vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. And so they went. When he went out again, about noon and about 3 o'clock, he did the same. And about 5 o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. He said to them, why are you standing here all day? They said to him, because nobody has hired us. And he said to them, go into the, uh, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his managers, call the laborers and give them their pay. So here's what's happening. This owner of this vineyard goes out at, I don't know, 6 o'clock in the morning. He finds some laborers. He's like, listen, I want you guys to come over and work in my vineyard. I don't know what do you do in a vineyard. You vineyard stuff. And he's like, I'm going to pay you $100, okay, for, for the whole day. 
that sounds good to you? He's like, yeah, sounds great. Let's go. He goes. So then he goes back out around 9 o'clock. He sees some folks over here standing around doing nothing. He's like, hey, you want to go and do vineyard stuff in my vineyard? And they're like, yeah, sure. I'll pay you 100 bucks. Boop. They go over there. Mind you, this is 9 o'clock, 3 o'clock. This is three hours later. Okay? Then he goes out again and does the same thing around noon, and then he does the same thing around 3. He does the same thing around 5. So at the end of the day, he tells his manager, call everybody and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about 5 o'clock came, each of them received $100. Right? Now, when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received $100. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, the last only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Okay, these guys are about to start a union. <laughs> but he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Right, I went out at 6 o'clock, I talked to you, and you said $100, sounds pretty good to me, right? The last worked only one hour and you made them equal to us. Uh, verse 14, he says, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The 6 a.m. workers were the Jews. The last Johnny come latelys are the Gentiles. And notice their resentment. Listen, we've been here all day. Shouldn't we get more? And he said, we made an agreement. You would work, and I will give my $100. Why are you mad when somebody who showed up later, if I want to be generous because I can have, remember what Paul says, I'll have mercy upon whom I have mercy? That's what it means. I'm going to pay these guys who worked only an hour also $100. I'm the owner of the vineyard, right? I hired you. You agreed. What is it to you, right? That's the Jewish mindset. Now, looking at your faces, you're like, they have a good point. <laughs> I've worked so hard. There's another parable that is more popular, and that is in Luke 15. I call this the parable of the two brothers, but more famously known as the prodigal son. And it goes like this. Okay, so the, the parable is typically used to sort of... Um, it's kind of like a backslidden type illustration that people do, etc. But technically, it's not only one son, there's two sons, okay? So if you read through the parable, it goes like this. Then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that, will belo that belongs to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had. He went out to a distant country. There he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. I think that was specifically chosen for a reason, to feed pigs. He would gladly have uh, filled himself with the paws that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands or slaves have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your slaves. And so he set off and went to his father. But while he was still afar off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put the ring on his finger, sandals of his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for his son. This son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and he was found. And then the music starts and an altar call is given and everybody walks up, right? Well, that's not the end of the parable. The end of the parable goes on like this. Now, his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. He called one of his slaves and asked, what was going on? He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command and you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But then this son of yours came back, who, was who has devoured your property with prostitutes and killed the fatted calf. Then the father said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost, and he has been found. The older brother is Israel. That's the parable. The one who was feeding pigs, and you know no Jew is going to go no near a pig, is the Gentile who was living his life out there. And he comes back. He's going to get the exact same thing than the one who has been in the house with him all this time is getting. Point of the parable is, number one, did you notice the resentment of the older son. Like he sounds like he had a lot of issues with his father that he's been keeping in there. Like he, he didn't want to, you know, he perhaps was obeying or obedient to his father, but he was gnashing his teeth a little. Like, I don't like this dude. I've worked all this time and here comes this guy and you do all this stuff for him. What about me? That's the Jewish mindset. Okay. Now, it is a sinful mindset because, obviously, like the parable says, that they should rejoice, right? You should rejoice when somebody who perhaps was out and doing what they're doing or whatever, but God brings them in and blesses them and even puts them in the same 
places you, you should rejoice over that. But what do we do? We get angry because we think, listen, I've worked hard, I've earned it, you know, you should put me in a higher, in a higher place. And so, circling back to Romans 9, verse 30, this is where we left up uh, last time. Here's the Apostle Paul's point, basically, that he's been trying to make all the way till now. Verse 30 says this, What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness through faith. But Israel, who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but it was on the basis of works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's the point. The point is that these Gentiles acquired the righteousness that was promised to Israel by faith. They didn't because they thought that they could earn it. And so Paul says that this righteousness, um, based on the law, they stumble over the stumbling stone, as it is written, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the Jewish people, in their rejection of their Messiah, they stumble upon that rock, which is Jesus Christ, and they never receive the righteousness that God had promised to them. So that's the theological summary of Paul's doctrine of justification. So justification is God's declaration that you are righteous by grace through faith on the basis of the atonement and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So to be saved is to be set aright by God or with God through faith. It's to have peace with God through faith and not by works. So that's justification, basically summarized, okay? In the context of the Jews and the Gentiles as it shows up in the Bible. Now, the reason why this is important to Paul is because Paul was battling with something that we today necessarily don't battle, which is the issue of can a Gentile and a Jew be together as God's people? Today, we don't have a problem. We understand that. Paul's writings worked, okay? They worked. That's why we don't see this as a big issue. But in his day, this was a big issue. Now, one of the arguments that the Jewish people also made to Paul was, if you're saying that salvation is by faith or by grace through faith apart from the works of the law, then I can live however I want and still go to heaven and still be saved. That's what you're saying. Because if the, war, if the law has nothing to do with it, so therefore I can do whatever and still be saved. Paul says, no. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, I want to show you this. Paul is going to prove in his writings that not only does salvation by grace through faith is the way to be saved, but it's the only way that you can be truly holy in this life. Okay? So verse 2, I mean chapter 2, verse 11 goes like this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions in the present age to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity 
and purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good deeds. You're not saved by works, but you're saved for works. See, the issue, you know, like I've, like, the internet, the internet is a great place, but I've been in these discussions online where people get into the whole thing on altar calls. You ever heard that argument? Altar calls good, altar calls bad. Everybody's missing the point. And the problem is this. The problem is, is that salvation by grace through faith is unto good deeds. In other words, once you're saved and once you're a believer, your life needs to follow with good deeds and good works. Okay? That is the teaching of the Bible that is clear. Chapter 3. We're still in Titus. Remind them. Okay, so Titus, you're a pastor. This is what I want you to do. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show courtesy to everyone. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit. This spirit he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is sure. Okay? And he goes on to say, I desire that you insist on these things so those who have come to believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So, you've been saved by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. You didn't add anything into this. God saved you out of his sheer mercy. But now that you're saved, you need to be careful to devote yourselves to good works. In other words, you need to be intentioned. You need to carefully study, understand, figure out, plan, consider on how can you, as a saved Christian, do good works and good deeds. So good deeds are part of your salvation. Not to get saved, but once you are saved, good works are part of your salvation. In other words, is the evidence, is how you show is your devotion to God is to do good deeds. Now, the Apostle Paul, who some people call him the Apostle of Grace, is also the Apostle of good works. Because every time you read the Apostle Paul, this is how his writings go. Uh, lofty theology stuff, high theology stuff, and boom, practical work stuff that you need to do, etc. So then you get to the book of Romans, you read the first eight chapters, it's just like whoosh, heaven. Then you get to chapter 12, whoosh, earth. Chapter 12 to 16 is just commands. Do this, do that, don't do this, do that. Act this way. You are a saved person. You are a child of God. This is how you conduct yourself, etc. So 
the believer is a, and, the, and, and even the church as a whole should be a church that always thinks and considers and shows good works and good deeds. So if you have a church in a community, the community should be able to walk up and say, yeah, that's the people who do a bunch of good stuff out here. They do a lot of good deeds out here. What people shouldn't say is, yeah, those are the money-greedy people. Because the money-greedy people, that's not good deeds, and that's not good works, okay? Those are the people who help out the poor. Go to Galatians. This is, I'm winging it. Let me show you one of the most amazing things, one of the most important things, which is related to what we're talking about. This is a confrontation that happened. So Paul rolls down to Jerusalem, and you have all these leaders. You have Peter, you got James, you got all these guys, and here shows up Johnny-come-lately Paul, right? And uh, they get into it a little bit. There's a confrontation, uh, you know, Paul called Peter a hypocrite in front of everybody and all that stuff. Then we get to, in chapter 2, he tells the story, uh, verse 1, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, okay, taking Titus along with me. This is the guy that he, we just read his letter. I went up and respond to a revelation. Then I laid before them, not only in private meetings with them, with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel which I proclaim among the Gentiles. So they're, they're comparing notes, okay? In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Um, so in other words, I want to make sure that we're on the same page, that we got the same thing going here. We're comparing notes, etc. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy the freedom we have in Christ, so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. So here's what's happening. The believers who stayed in Jerusalem were being influenced by these false brethren who were telling them, listen, okay, you believe in Jesus, but listen, you still got to get circumcised. You still have to keep the law. You need to observe the ordinances, the ceremonial laws, and all that stuff. You still have to do that if you want to get saved. Paul is saying, no, you don't have to do that. You, cannot just, you can't just be some Gentile and roll up in here and just keep on going. That's what they were saying. And Paul is saying, no, that's not the truth of the gospel. So he's standing his ground, okay? He says, we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders... What they actually were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality, so I don't care if they were leaders or not. Those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me, sending me to the Gentiles. And then James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship. So they agreed, you, this is true. You're right. This is the teaching. Okay? All right? So this is, a, this is a big deal. Okay? This is when the decision is going to come. You know, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And at this moment, in God's providence, they all agree, yes, we're saved by grace apart from the works of the law. Okay? So they give him his right hand of fellowship agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, 
that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. So we have this event that is going to decide Christianity. Okay? The issue is solved. The gospel is upheld, but they all agree with one thing. Remember the poor. And Paul says, I already have. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So what we see here is that we see a church and a gathering of the gospel that produces not only salvation, but also the feeding and helping of the poor and the oppressed. Why? Because that's how we identify God's people. Even in the Old Testament, what does God require of you, man? That you be merciful, that you care for the oppressed, for the widows, etc. And so a, a Christian individually is a Christian that does good works, who live the right life that he should live. We'll get into that probably on the next sermon. But also as a church collectively, the way that we show that we are saved, righteous people is good deeds. So when you hear people say, well, the church is just a place where you got these greedy pastors and all they want is money and they're all just taking money, that shows the level of understanding that we have of the gospel. That shows that we're not living how the Bible says that we ought to live. Because if anything, we should be backwards to that. We are the people who do good deeds. Now, conclusion, okay? Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ Jesus, apart from the works of the law. That's clear, okay? But salvation produces good works in the person who is saved. And also, this is how the gospel uh, produces a righteousness that is even better than the keeping of the law is that the gifts and talents and power and enablement to, for you to do those things come through the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.